All right, welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. We're in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions, LLC. Here we're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth today. Dad, how you doing? I am doing great, Andrew. Uh, excited for our guest. He is a well-traveled hockey player, a really solid hockey player. Why don't you give us the intro? I can't wait to get into some stories. Yeah, absolutely. So today we have with us Matt, uh, Mike Ratchuk. So Mike began playing for the U.S. National U-17 and U-18 team and in the NAHL from 2004 to 2006 and was later drafted 42nd overall in the 06 NHL draft by the Philadelphia Flyers. Later, Mike committed to Michigan State University and played with the team from 06 to 08 and eventually saw his first pro hockey, pro hockey action at the tail end of the AHL season with the Philadelphia Phantoms. From 2008 to 2012, Mike continued to play pro hockey in various leagues, such as the AHL, CHL, and the ECHL, before heading overseas for the first time to play in the E-Bell League. After a season, Mike returned to North America, played in the ECHL for various teams from 2013 to 2016. Later, he returned overseas again, this time for the Sheffield Steelers in the EIHL, um, and then eventually finished his career in North America before retiring in 2019. I am uh, long-winded right now. Sorry about that, Mike. It probably sounds like your mother wrote it. But without further ado, <laughs> welcome our guest today, Mike Ratchuk. Mike, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, Mike, let's obviously let's start back, you know, all the way back to your youth hockey days. You played for uh, the U.S. national team on um, you know, numerous occasions. Definitely a bit of a different route than what we've seen a lot of players go during their teenage years. So what was the decision? How did you get hooked up with, with the national team? Uh, I, so I was lucky enough to play in the select festivals uh, in the summer from my 14 under to uh, my, I think it was my 17 and under or 18 and under. And um, it was, it was there that they had, different recruiters from the national program. And to be honest, I had never heard of it until I first went to those festivals. I was kind of, I, at the time I was hopeful that maybe if I played well in high school, I could go and play junior somewhere. And that was kind of all I'd really thought about. And, um, luckily I had played well enough in the festivals that I had gotten looked at at my 15 and under camp at St. Cloud and um, Ken Martell at the time, who was the, uh, in charge of player development at the national program had talked to me and invited me um, to come the next year. And, and uh, I jumped on it. So it was a phenomenal experience. So yeah, during 2005, 2006, uh, when you played for the U S national team, you guys actually uh, won the gold medal um, during the U 18 world junior championship. So what was it like being able to, you know, first of all, represent, you know, your country in such a huge hockey tournament, but to also win the gold medal. Oh, it was, uh, you know, for us, for the group that we had, it was, um, you know, the culmination of two years of a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline. Um, we kind of all changed our way of lives and uh, uh, just, you know, the we really kind of committed ourselves to what we were doing. I mean, you had to in order to be there in the first place, but um, it was one of those things where day one, since you're there, was training for that 18 and under you know gold medal so for us to to get that was un, it was an unbelievable accomplishment i can still remember being in the room after the game um i had my family watching at home and um 
you know, this is way, way, this is back. So it was before it was so accessible to watch a game that was at the time we were playing in Sweden. So, um, but yeah, it was, like I said, it was two years of hard work and um, it was uh, an unbelievable group of guys. Mike, where was that world championship that year? So that was in uh, Sweden. It was in, they had it in a mix of, one or two cities it was uh angle home i think was one of them and i am not going to be able to remember the second one but they would kind of split it between you know two to three different rinks um but it was we were there for close to three weeks um but it was it was a great tournament the players that were in it and guys that were you know future draft picks and guys that are still playing now it was um you know pretty cool to look back on so how did the, the, the coach and the coaching staff prepare you guys for all these international teams? Was it, was it different than what you've experienced before up to that point? Uh, I got Honestly, it was probably nothing that I experienced. It definitely was nothing I experienced before. And, and uh, to be perfectly honest, you know, it was hard to find, at least on a preparation level, the same type, you know, anywhere else that I played because I – played that year for John Hines um, and he was easily one of the best coaches I ever had. And it was because he demanded so much out of you. He was, you know, to, he, I remember him saying to me years later, he had coached against me in the American league and he was laughing saying, you know, you guys were 16 year old prima donnas. I had to be. I had to be ruthless to you. You know what I mean? No one else had ever done it. So, um, which was true. We needed it, but um, he was one of those guys that, you know, he, he didn't have to say much. He could look at you and you would just freeze and start running through your head. What, what did I do wrong today? You know, it was, he just had this look about him and, but he was, he was incredible when it came to preparation, attention to detail, um, there's things that he taught us where he would kind of, he would randomly call your name in the locker room and you would have to say, we had a uh, scoped S C O P E D was selfless, committed, organized, prepared, uh, energetic and uh, disciplined. And he would randomly call on guys. Now that was 16 when I was taught that and I don't have a great memory, but that was, that was how much it was put into our, heads it was he was there but it was one of those things where it was i like we just talked about that gold medal game um he was the first guy in tears after the game and i think almost everybody else in the room followed because it you know it was we loved him it was he was he was tough as nails uh but he he really knew what he was doing he still to this day is uh he's an incredible coach i'm i'm excited for the success he's been having because he deserves all of it he's he's unbelievable at what he does so um you know we we benefited from from his uh you know his coaching style that's for sure so you go on to be selected in the second round of the 2006 nhl draft so we always love to uh ask this question for the guys that are blessed enough and talented enough to be drafted in nhl what is your draft story like uh, so <laughs> mine was, you know, it was, uh, it was 
a dream come true, obviously the, what everybody else would say, but it was, I can remember, you know, I can remember what the temperature was outside. I can remember everything about that day. I, the t- two or three days leading up to it, I had a, a few interviews um, with different general managers and, you know, the brass from different teams because I didn't go to the Columbine. So that was my opportunity to meet with teams and look them eye to eye and have conversations and uh, which was so, which that in itself was, was awesome to me um, just because it was my first kind of introduction to, you know, this is it now we're, you know what I mean? It's what I had always worked for. So um, my dad and I flew to Vancouver um, and it was the two of us and um, my agent and we, it was, you know, it was, you know, it was, it's one of those things where it was nerve wracking, but for me, I was expected to go, I think at the, I, I think I was expected to go at the end of the third round was, was, it was somewhere around there. Now I was a guy that I played most of my career at 5'11", 185. And this was before, like right now I would be just a normal player in the league. But back then it was, I was very small and, um, you know, it was, but I, so for me, as far as not going to the combine, I had kind of joked at the time with, you know, my, my brother who had been drafted in the first round 10 years before me and, you know, my age and I kind of joked and said, I think it's a probably a blessing in disguise to not go to the combine because, I'm not a big guy. I haven't even come close to maturing. So if, if it's all testing, it's going to, you know, it may push me back a little bit. So, um, which I don't know how true or not that is. I, I, I really don't. But um, like I said, at the time, I was so excited to go and meet these teams. And I tried to sit in every interview and I, every little thing I paid attention to was, you know, sitting in my chair, like I wanted to, like I looked like I was ready to, you know, jump over the boards and play. I, I wanted to look like I was ready to go. So, um, like I said, I, when we got into the arena, uh, it was, you know, I, at one point I, I almost considered getting popcorn and kind of putting my feet up. <laughs> I figured it was going to be a little while. And um, early on, and you know, it was, I think it was maybe, it was maybe 12 picks. Uh, I'm not sure how many picks it was into the second round, but it was, um, you know, it was, I'll never forget it. As soon as, you know, as soon as I heard my name, it was, um, you know, it's, it's a very strange and quick flash of memories of street hockey, minor league hockey, college, you know, you get kind of a flash in your head of, all these things that have led to this point and um it was it was unbelievable nice so you eventually uh commit to michigan state so two questions number one um what made you decide to do the uh collegiate route rather than trying to uh, play in the juniors and then the second question is what made you choose michigan state i'm sure that you had plenty of offers so I was, again, I was lucky that I, I was fortunate enough that I had a, a couple different schools that I was really interested in that um, wanted me to come play. And I, I had 
early on, I, to be honest, I think when I was when I was younger, I just always had a real love affair with college hockey. I just thought there was something so cool about it. My brother, I was I was eight or nine years old when my brother played at Bowling Green, and I remember driving with my dad up to to Ohio to watch the games and the band playing in the crowd and you know it was just something that I I just always thought was was so cool and um looking back would I have gone college over junior I really don't know that's um you know I, I don't know what it would have done differently there's sometimes I think about it but I, there was a couple different schools that I was really interested in M- Minnesota was always a favorite I used to love the University of Minnesota I still do um but I, I remember going to visit Boston University, I think, two, two to three weeks before I was planning on going to visit Michigan State. And I absolutely fell in love with, with BU. Um, but it came down to there was one, one of their backup goalies was, was uh, Johnny Curry. Uh, he's an unbelievable goalie. And he was their third string. And that year had become their starting goalie. And okay. so they had to, they basically had to get money to give him a scholarship. So at the time he was a backup goalie. So he wasn't getting a full, a full ride. So it was essentially a waiting game. We're not sure if we're going to have, you know, what we're, if we do have a scholarship, if we're going to get a forward or not, you know, we're, they were still kind of waiting and figuring things out. So as I, w- we were waiting on that, um, I went to go see Michigan state and I just remember, a very overwhelming uh, feeling of comfort. I just felt very, very, I remember walking around. That's another day that I can remember very specifically. Um, I can remember walking around the campus with the head, head and assistant coach, my dad. And there was two or three of the guys from the team, two of the, two of the guys from Buffalo were there. And then um, Chris Mueller and Timmy Kennedy uh, and then Brian Lurg. And it was one of the things I don't even know if Lurgy knows the story, but it was one of the things that was kind of one of the coolest parts of the visit to me was because he was at the time going into my freshman year was going to be Lurgy, Lurgy and Mueller's junior year, Timmy's uh, TK sophomore year. So Lurgy was at the had established himself at that point as one of the star forwards and, you know, popular player ever he was you know a goal scorer he was just one of those guys he was the flashy for you know he had the real long flowing curly hair he, you know he he stood out everybody knew you know and yeah. I'll, I'll never forget where we're walking through campus and my dad is in the front of the group with the coaches kind of talking small talking um Mueller and TK are in front of me talking and Bry Lurg is walking next to me and I just happened to kind of look and he was like peeking over towards me and he kind of gives me a little bit of a grin and he, and he goes, so you're, you're coming. Right. And I kind of started laughing and he goes, and he started elbowing me and he goes, come on, you're coming. <laughs> and to me, it was like the cool guy at the party was treating me like I was like, I, you know, it was just, it was, it was like, the so I was like, Oh man, this is, this is it. You know, like, so it was, and like I said, two guys from my own neighborhood were there and, walking through the campus and just in a weird way, it felt like my neighbor, it just, it just felt very comfortable to me. So it was, 
it was kind of an immediate feeling of like, this is, you know, I get chills now talking about it because I can remember that feeling of going, yeah, this is, this is it. Awesome. So yeah, you had spent two years playing for Michigan state and you guys even won the championships in uh, 2007. And what, what was that like winning the championships during that time? It was just your sophomore year. Correct. This, that was my uh, freshman year. So freshman. it was the, the, uh, the joke that, a lot of the older guys made was that we were our freshman class was spoiled because they had a couple of them have that the year before they had lost the game to go to the frozen four um the year before that i'm not, I'm not even sure if they, i think they made it into the tournament but not not as far so um you know so for us it was like i said it was kind of an instant you know it was but you know it was i'll never for it was we were playing in uh st louis's arena they had a full crowd um and it was you know like i said i had grown up watching college hockey so it was i had always dreamed of being in that game and we had we were losing the game um we were losing one nothing with i think it was maybe i want to say eight to ten minutes left uh timmy timmy kennedy again who played i would argue probably the game of his life that game uh he tied the game with, like I said, a few minutes left. And then 18.9 seconds, he made this spin move on the uh, the end boards behind the net. He banked the puck to himself, kind of shook off a defenseman, passed it out in front to just an advocator, and he puts it in the net. And, um, you know, the rest is – it was – you know, for us it was – because it's that instant feeling of there's only 18 seconds left. We won the game. Like, yeah. this is it. We just won the game. You know, so it's – you know, you go from nerve-wracking, nerve – you know, we have to score, we have to score, to we just won it. So, you know, so it was – it was, you know, an incredible feeling the week after on campus was was unbelievable. It was, you know, it was uh, – like I said, we were spoiled, but, um, yeah, it was something I'll never forget. So, Mike, yeah, I, I noticed this now being more common than uncommon as, as you know, we talked to more of our guests that, you know, went through the same experience. But I always like to ask this question. So you finish your sophomore uh, year at Michigan State University, um, or at least a season there, and then you quickly, um, you know, get promoted straight to the American Hockey League um, to play your first string of pro games. I think you played like three or four. So kind of a two-part question. First of all, what was the story on you suddenly getting picked up and, and also leaving um, college. And then what was that transition like, man? You're, you're playing with not necessarily kids, but, you know, 18 to 21 year olds. And now you're playing with, you know, full grown men fightings allowed. I and mean, that had to be pretty, pretty uh, eye opening, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, those first three games, I, I actually wasn't even expected to play, but what had happened was they, it got towards the end of that sophomore season and you know, one of the biggest selling points made to me by um, Paul Holmgren in Philadelphia, who was the general manager at the time, was, you know, you've you've played your best at this level and you've, you know, my sophomore season was statistically much better than my freshman year. So he said, you know, you already know what you can do at this level. So a third year isn't going to do anything for your development for us. So it was kind of a it was kind of a simple argument for me, I, you know, and what was going on in my head was if I, I had at the time been very lucky with injuries, um, 
And so I said, you know, if, if something happens and I get hurt, that, that same thing may not, that same offer may not be there. So, um, you know, for me, it was, it was something I jumped on right away. And like I said, I was, I was, it, it was a little bit of a process as far as deciding just because, you know, the story I had just told of going to visit, it was, to me, it was, I flashed right back to that and thought, geez, I'm already gone. I'm, I'm done now. Like, you know, that's, and something I've noticed a lot as I've gotten older too, is that I, I have a major problem with the finality of a situation when I know something's over and, and that's it. So this team, I'm never going to play with again, that's it. And so it was as excited as I was, I'd worked my whole life for, to get to professional hockey. It was, that was my, also my, I, I wouldn't say my first taste because when I left the national team, that was the same two guys or the same for two years, the same group of guys every day at school, at practice. So that was, you know, that's another tough goodbye, but this was, you know, another taste kind of of, okay, that's it. So these guys are, this part of my life is done. College hockey's over. And, you know, so it was, but I remember at the time speaking to the, the higher ups in Philadelphia and they had said, you know, we right now our roster's full. Um, so we, we can't really promise that you'll get in and play these last couple of games. So if you want to stay and finish your schooling and you, you know, then you can come in the summer and start working out. And for me, I wanted to, I wanted to be a flyer. I wanted to be, get there and be a part of the team. So I was, so for me, I said, I'll, I'll come there and start practicing. I'll, I'll do whatever I have to, to just be part of the team now and get there and be part of it. So um, kind of a stroke of luck, I guess, for me, one of the uh, defensemen for the Phantoms got a suspension. Uh, there was three games left after this game and he had gotten a three game suspension. So he was out for the rest of the regular season games. And they had kind of said, you know, be ready to go Wednesday because you're, you know, you're up now. So it was, it was one of those, you know, instantly it's, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a crazy um, feeling. I think, you know, again, I say, unfortunately, looking back, I don't think I was maturity level wise. I wasn't ready. I don't think mentally to deal with you know, as far as getting, getting a paycheck and having a lot of free time. And, you know, there's, I went from you're going to class in the morning, class in the, or practice in the afternoon, class at night, tutor at night to, you know, now you just have to skate and you have to make sure that you're in unbelievable shape and you eat right and you cook right. And you, your body is, you take care of it and you're a pro be a John Hines again used to always say be a pro be a pro you know and um you know for me it was uh the I remember getting there and it was before I had even touched the ice for a practice I they there was part of my you know half of my signing bonus was in an envelope in my stall when I showed up for my first practice and like I said, I, I think for me mentally, it was, I, my roommate, my rookie year was Claude Giroux. Um, and who it was, again, that was something I was lucky to have was he was, 
he and I were really good buddies. And we, we I actually texted back and forth with him a few weeks back um, because I've t- Jimmy Van Riemsdyk uh, played with me a bit there too my rookie year. And he and I have been talking. We, we've tried to have a routine kind of checking in at once a week, every once in a while. So um, I, uh, it's, it's actually been pretty cool because luckily for, Jimmy Van Reems, like he um, got me in touch with Paul Holmgren recently, and I was able to have a conversation with him. And, you know, part of, part of the reason that I know I'm jumping around, guys, and I apologize, but um, That's okay. I, uh, part of the reason that I was traded out of Philly, you know, a year and a half later was, I, you know, I can't speak for them, but I think they were kind of tired of waiting for me to mature and develop as a player. And, like when I was saying about, you know, not being ready, I think for me, I fell way too, way too fast into a trip into, you know, I have this paycheck and this much free time and I'm a pro now. This is, you know, let's go have a good time. We've been working for this for a long time, you know? So, um, and that was a switch that I had inside me that I wasn't able to turn off for the next 10 years. Um, you know, so it was, but it was for me, like I said, fast forward to a month or two ago, I was able to talk with Paul Holmgren on the phone and tell him that I've been sober for just over three years. And, um, it was probably one of the more important conversations I've had in a long time. And it was very cool to, to hear his voice and have that conversation with him. Um, you know, so to me, it was, uh, like I said, it was a lot of things that I wished I would have learned earlier. Um, but, uh, you know, it was uh, things that came along the way. And I was, you know, like I said, able to still keep in touch with guys later down the road. Well, as we dip our feet into the hockey community pool here with this podcast over the last year, you know, I think that we're getting to know, you know, this hockey culture and, and the the guys that are in hockey, including the business guys, and and uh, I think you're right. You know, we're talking with Holmgren of, sure they've got to make you know decisions what's best for the team, but um you know they're all hockey guys, and I do think they care about players and they care about you know everybody that they've they've worked with. So I'm sure that that was a a, a meaningful conversation to Paul Holmgren too, just uh you know make sure he finds out one of the guys that was on his radar screen a while back is, is doing good and, and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, that kind of makes me like hockey even more to tell you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, to me, it was, like I said, the talk I had with him, he had, you know, towards the very end of it, he said, you know, you're, you know, you're meant, you're meant to do a lot more than play hockey. You got a lot, you got a lot of other things you got to do. So, you know, and it was, Kind of, and again, it's another thing that gives me a chill because it kind of went right through me when he said it. And it was, um, and you know, it's uh, like I said, I bring up Claude Giroux because he was a guy that when I, when we had first started living together and playing together, I had heard that he had, you know, a reputation of being somewhat of a wild guy, like he was fun to, you know. He was, he was that good on the ice, but he also was really fun off the ice party, you know, the whole thing. But the thing that 
he did that was really impressive to me still looking back is he didn't make the flyers out of camp that first year and it was almost like kind of a switch that went off with him where he would still go out you know with the team and do and whatever it's not like he you know did anything different but it was just he was so intense and focused about you know getting to that ultimate goal and once he was he was called up at Christmas time and never came back and that was and you know for me like I said I I kind of uh I think at one point it was it turned into a thing where I was very okay with being at the pro hockey level and you know what I mean and it was um like I said I was I was I'm I was so fortunate as far as where I played and who I played with and guys that, like I said, I still talk to. Um, and like you just said about having it, you know, make you like hockey more. It's one of those things where it's, um, you know, the best people in the world that I've met, I was lucky enough to meet through, you know, playing this game. So. What was the craziest on ice, uh, experience that you had in the AHL specifically because when you played in the uh, 2000s you know that was kind of a crazy time for the AHL very tough rough is there any you know incident that might stand out that would make a good story uh well I had um I played my first time when I got I mean in Philadelphia I had there was a lot of tough you know Josh Gratt and there was some guys that I played with that were were tough, tough players. Um, and the first time that I got traded to Columbus and their American league team was in Syracuse. That was, they were, I mean, I think they're still probably famous for being one of the tougher American league teams to ever be put together. They had, I, he, he was gone before I got there, but Zenon Kanopka was there for a long time. I was there with Kevin Harvey, John Morasti, Tom Sestito, guys that were just tough tough hard tough and like i said on on top of it some of the best people that i know that you know were were good to me and what part of the thing that i miss most about the game is just how how good guys were to you know how you you would get so close with guys and how good they were to each other but i would say you know two things that can stick out that kind of stick out in my head are I can remember probably my, it might've been my second or third game uh, pro that we played in Hershey and there was a five on five brawl in the corner of the ice in Hershey. So it's in front of 8,000 people. And like you guys just said, I came from college full cages no fight and you know so i'm sitting on the bench going holy jesus you know this is a different <laughs> world here but it was but it's also like oh this is great you know this is the game it's cool it's, this is you know what i mean it's what i've always watched growing you know it was it was amazing but i had i had mentioned playing with johnny morasti and he had these legendary fights if your listeners ever have time to spend an hour youtubing john morasti and or Jeremy Oblonsky. Yeah. Um, the two of them used to just absolutely physically assault each other. And I like it was just and the funniest part was they were I'm I'm 
I'm pretty sure they were they were cousins. I know they they were from the same, like they grew up in the same town. I think I'm almost positive there was some relation there, which made it even crazier the beatings that they used to put on each other. But Jeremy Oblosky was was an absolute animal. His his neck was as wide as my shoulders are, and uh, at one point my third year. I was traded to uh, Columbus, so I was with Syracuse my second year. My third year, Columbus changes affiliations to Springfield instead of Syracuse. So everybody just basically moves over to Springfield. So at the time, at, at some point, the coaches had moved me up to forward because I think that was a certain, another point in my career where coaches were trying to figure out what the hell to do with me. So they said, well, we'll put him up on the wing and see if that works. And I was, I was a... Um, what they would call a high risk, high reward. So I, I, I like to rush the puck and carry the puck and at times it would cost me. So I think after a few too many times I would get thrown up and forward. So um, this one particular game we were playing against Binghamton and Jeremy Oblonsky is on the wing lined up against me. So at this point, at, at we're maybe in the second period and we're up for nothing. And we didn't have an amazing year that year, but I remember that night we were having a good night. So Nick Tarnaski is my centerman who played in the NHL for a bit in the American. I think he might've played in the KHL, but tough as nails, really, really, really good guy. Very good guy. Tough as nails. So Jablonski's lined up next to me and he's looking at Tarnaski and he goes, Tarno, I'm, I'm going to, I'm letting you know, I'm going to jump you right now. Just so you know, I'm going to jump you and we're going to go now. So Tarno's, but Tarnaski's very obviously going, Hey, we're, we're up for like, I, not in a trash talking way, but just saying very matter of factly, we're up for nothing. I'm not going to get anything out of fighting you and possibly getting my ass, you know, like there's nothing in it for me. So Dublonsky's essentially cutting him off going, yeah, yeah, that doesn't matter to me. I'm going to jump you. Like, just, it doesn't matter. Just be ready. I'm going to jump you. So to try and be funny, because that's what, uh, unfortunately, I do in these times, <laughs> I'm trying to distract Jablonski and be funny. And I kind of look over at him and I go, hey, just so you know, I won't, I won't bother you. Just, it's that, you know. <laughs> and he looks over and just kind of gives me a, like, peeks out of the corner of his eye. And without missing a beat, he puts the, his hand on top of my head and pats me like a dog. And he goes, ah, don't worry, little guy. You're all right. <laughs> and I've never felt so emasculated in my life. I didn't even know if I, I thought about changing shit. I was like, can someone take me off the ice? Or, you know, but, um, but I just remember being like, this animal is, you know, at least he knows not to, you know that I'm not going to do anything to him. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, they were, like I said, between those, you know, brawls like that, it was, I, I played with some, some tough guys. And, and like I said, I, I, it's hard to, you know, pick out certain guys that were better guys. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I don't think it's, I think any hockey player would say it's hard to do that, but you know, tough guys, a lot of times were, at least for me, were always like the big brothers and they were always, you know, good to me. So it was, uh, yeah, having a guy like Johnny Morasti around was uh, was was enjoyable for me. 
So I know that um, just while we're on kind of on the topic of, of fighting and hockey, I always like to ask this uh, question to our guests. Um, you know, do you see fighting and hockey um, being out of the sport 100% completely, especially at the NHL level, I mean, um, within five, 10 years or eventually, or do you think that fighting will always still have a place in hockey and it, it, it will never leave? What are your opinions on that? So I, 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 I think that, the fighting's definitely changed in the game. Um, if you if you watch the way it is now, I, you know, besides the fact that it's there's so much fewer fights, I, I you know I I think it's just there's still that nastiness to the game, which I think is necessary. I think it's a big part of the game. Um, I'm I'm a very big believer that the minute that you take the fighting out or you make bigger suspensions or bigger fines for fighting is when the highly skilled players start getting cheap shotted and knees taken out and things like that, because there's no retribution. I'm, I was, I'm, I was brought up a very old fashioned way. Any, any player that plays with me knows the player that I was. So I, would never pretend to sound like a tough guy because I'm not one and I don't pretend to be, but I was always kind of brought up that way of, you know, if you act even in life, if you act a certain way, you have to answer the bell at some point. Like that's, that's just kind of how it goes. There's a way you got to act. And if you don't, then someone's going to put you in line. And that's, so it's, so to me, if there's no one there to keep people accountable, it's, it's, you know, I think it's in that regard, I think it's important at the same time. I think players, especially now younger players that are coming up, it's the skill, like the individual skill they have is so much higher. I at least think, I feel like I sound like a dinosaur when I say that, but <laughs> I look at younger kids and I go, it's, incredible to me the way that they shoot pucks and stick handle and you know what i mean so i just to me i also think that they're developing different so it's not like when we were little kids it was you know you dump the puck in and you skate hard and you hit hard and if you want to make the team you fight and if somebody bothers the star you fight and like that's but i just feel like it's not that's not really what's being taught for better or worse. You know what I mean? I just, to me, to me, I, I, I don't really know right now the way the fighting is. I, I, I don't really have an issue because I think it's still in the game. I don't think there's too much of it. I don't think there's too, I think you're still getting a chance to see, I think every night there's, you know, the uh you know top 10 highlight there's, there's all these highlight real goals that happen essentially every game now again because of how skilled these players are so in my opinion the fighting is not taking away from that at all i think that if you take the fighting out of the game you're eventually going to lose that superstardom i think right right so moving on to uh, you had one weird season to where you're kind of jumping back and forth and you ended up being loaned um, uh, on two different occasions. 
And then after, I believe your loans, I don't know if my timeline is completely correct, but after your loans, you ended up with um, the Florida ever, uh, the Florida team in the ECHL, but I don't think you played a single regular season game, but you played in the playoffs and you, you guys actually ended up winning the Kelly cup championship. What was that like so, brand new team all of a sudden after being on a couple of teams that season and, and having to, to be in that battlefield like that with people you don't know. And then you won. Well, so that, that year was actually uh, a fairly memorable. And it was, I, um, what had happened was I was playing in Elmira in the East coast league and got called up to Binghamton uh, in the AHL. Uh, and I think I actually was called up to, that's probably why I, I was, it was, I think I was loaned to Syracuse. It was, at the time, Elmira was affiliated with different teams, and I was just on an East Coast League contract. So I remember at the time, my agent kind of saying, if you do this, instead of signing an American League deal, you can get called up by any American League team. You're not tied to one American League. So I was like, okay, that makes sense. So I went to Syracuse for a couple games, came back, went to Binghamton, and ended up getting – I think that was my third of five concussions while I was there. Um, so I ended up, I was up there for a couple of weeks, I guess, rehabbing. And then right when I, essentially right when I came out of that and I was sent back down to Elmira, I was traded to Florida, but this was with, I, so I made it there before the playoffs, but it was probably, I want to say there was like 27 games left in the regular season. Um, so it was, I was able to finish that basically that half of the year and then go into playoffs. And for me, it, it was, you know, what's funny is when I first got traded, I remember the first three or four days when I was in Florida, I was in tears on the phone with my roommate from Elmira. Uh, now, mind you, I'm the youngest of six kids. I have four older sisters, so I, I'm, a, I'm an emotional kid. I always have been, unfortunately, for my teammates around me. So I'm in tears on the phone, like a basket case on the, you know, on my roommates, like, you know, you're in Florida. What, like, what do you, what's wrong with, you know, like, I don't get what, <laughs> what, what are you so sad about? So, but we were the team when I got traded at the Everblades, we were the last place team or one of the last place teams. Um, and it was one of the rare, like, normally in hockey, the way the hockey world works, you know, one or two guys on every team like you know old teammates or whatever peppered all over the place this was one of those teams that i knew one guy and that was it so i didn't know another soul on the team and the end by the end of that year when we won the kelly cup it was we're supposed to be actually next year is our 10-year reunion and our team owner we had during the pandemic last year we had a big zoom uh call with our whole team and our owner had called us to talk to us about basically having a reunion and flying back into town like the team to see each other. Cause it was, I mean, to this day, like I said, I, I was very lucky to play 10 years and that was easily, you know, the, one of the, clo I would say top two closest teams that I was on. And it was, but it was, even though I did make it there before playoffs, it was, the case of the team that I was traded from was a very, very tight knit. Everyone was together every day, all the time. And then I got traded to a team where I only knew one guy. So it was, 
there was definitely that adjustment period, but it's amazing what that Florida sun does to your patients. And, your, <laughs> you know, I was able to get over it pretty quick. So you uh, do spend some time across the pond playing in Austria. And I do want to cover too, uh, you had a season in the UK and we had talked a little off air about how we actually have uh, uh, quite a bit of UK listeners uh, to our podcast, a Sheffield and Nottingham fan, but you play with Steelers. So what was it like to play on that team, the fans in the, uh, in the arena? What was it like in, during your tenure there? I, uh, I, to be honest, I don't know if there's uh, I don't mean to sound completely corny, but there's not really, I'm afraid of wandering off for too long explaining how much I loved it there um so I'll try to be short but it was it was unfortunately again because uh you know because of what I was like off the ice and at that point my you know like I said the switch that went off for me with my drinking early on um at that point I was so I was I mean I was so thrilled about going to the UK but as far as my off the ice things I was so disappointed with myself from essentially falling so far away from the NHL, which was where I always dreamed of going, but it was one of those things where it was kind of a downwards, it was, you know, a, a downward slope where it was as uh, the angrier I got, the more I would drink and go out and do what I shouldn't do. So it was, so Sheffield was one, it was, I, I still to this day, dream of being able to go back there even to, to watch a game just because I, I absolutely loved it there um, the people were incredible even you know like when we would play in Nottingham and it was you know one of our rival teams but you would talk to you know people on the crowd there and their local fan. and it was just just good pe- you know what I mean it was just very very honest very good people just they don't there's no bullshit it's just very 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 honest and I respected and appreciated that about all of them and they treated me like I was one of their own which I was more than thankful for so it was um like I said I unfortunately at the time it was I wasn't able to realize at that time how bad it would hurt to not be asked to come back there I I still go online and, and check in on their games and it's still I still get a little bit of a sick stomach going. I, I didn't really get to, to really play there and finish there. Like I, uh, that was kind of my goal was to end my career there. And, um, you know, they, but they would at the time they would have been absolutely insane to bring me back. Um, so, you know what I mean? It was one of those things I couldn't, I didn't really have much of an arguing point, but it was as far as, um, you know, as far as, what I felt about it there it was it was one of the most incredible years of my life. I loved I loved every minute of being there, and um, like I said, I think that's one of the things that I always fixate on when I talk about playing there is the people just that were in the town that you would talk to day to day. It was just very very good people around you all the time. So I was uh, I was a lucky man. So the scouting report on you, so to speak, is has been, you know, you're a guy that, yeah, you did, uh, um, you know, battle the, 
the drinking and maybe the maturity level, but that, you know, you, sh you probably would have moved on to the NHL quite easily. Um, but, you know, again, because of, you know, the, some of the things that you've mentioned, maybe that did prohibit you there. Um, so when did you finally, you said you've been sober now for three years, what was the wake up call? And, and if you don't mind talking, you know, briefly about the, the process, I mean, some like to talk about it, some don't. I, yeah, I, um, you know, for me, it's, I, I, I told you guys quick off the air. It's, um, for me, that's, that's one of the things, unfortunately for a lot of the people that are around me, I tend to be long winded and I'm a storyteller and I tend to, uh, according to a lot of people that, uh, I, apparently tell details that aren't necessary, but I think, I think they're important. So sometimes I overshare, but I, uh, but for me, it's, it's, um, you know, the, the drinking part, it's, it's one of the things that I can probably be the most honest and most open about, um, because it's probably what I'm most proud of now, as far as, you know, not drinking at, at, at this point, but, um, towards the end, it was, my last year I was playing in Jacksonville uh, in the East coast league. And that was mentally, it was um, I was in a dark place as far as dealing with a lot of, a lot of very, very heavy, the mix of heavy anxiety, heavy um, depression. I dealt with a lot of both of those issues. I, and I, um, it's probably it's I could point the finger at a lot of different reasons that 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 all came about. Some of it was, like I said, concussion issues that I had. Um, some of it was drinking. It was, you know, so it was but I had at that point, it, I had so much, you know, heavy anxiety that when I found out that my I had torn my hip again. I, before, before I found out it was torn, I, we had three games that I had played and I just didn't even, I didn't even feel like the same player. I just, it felt like I was using someone else's equipment. It just, everything felt a little off and hockey is and always has been, um, you know, my first love and kind of my safe haven and, to this day right now I'm, I'm lucky enough to I just started coaching at the hockey academy at the harbor center in Buffalo and I'm I'm grateful every single morning that I get up and go to that place because I thought I was never going to be able to get back in, into the game and it's you know it's the very old adage of you don't know what you got till it's gone type of thing it's um I, I didn't realize how much I missed um, just the sound of the steel cutting into the ice, very simple parts of the game that I miss the smells the you know, talking in the lock, just the the regular flow of the conversation and, you know, just, just little things like that. And towards the end of my, or towards the end of that year, once I found out my, my hip was torn, I was at a point where I was essentially totally, I had become totally the opposite of who I was before I, I was isolated. I was constantly by myself. 
I never wanted to be around anybody. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I just wanted to drink by myself, be on my, you know, keep to myself the whole thing. And my, I had had my second hip surgery, which ended up being, you know, one of the reasons that I kind of said, I think it's time to, it's time to, you know, move on. Um, I had gotten the hip surgery and three or four weeks out of it, I was still in town with a few other players that had gotten surgeries and were rehabbing. So there was a handful of us. So at the time, I, when I would drink, especially at that point, uh, I, I would think there's people that are out there like this, but when I would drink, it was just about putting any, anybody in, in my target. I had a lot of aggression inside of me over, you know, stuff that was bothering me probably about myself and what I had done with my career and the fact that I drank too much and that I didn't, all this time was gone. And so at that point I would drink just so I could get to the point where I could look at someone and have them look at me and go, what did you say? And then it would turn, you know, so that was like my goal was just, I wanted to take out, which is a very, very dark, you know, it's not a, it's a sad place to, to be, but that's where I was towards the end. And what it took was I, um, I ended up going out and I bumped into one of the, one of the guys on my team who uh, actually Speaking of the UK league, Cameron Critchlow, he plays in uh, Manchester. Very, very good man. Critchy boy is a very, he's a good man and a really good player. He's tough as nails, but he um, kind of had met me outside. And luckily, luckily for me, I don't remember a ton of details from that night, but I ended up bumping into other guys from the team and kind of, just took out a bunch of anger from my career was over. You know, I was around, I was looking at a bunch of younger guys that were, had a lot of time ahead of them. I, that year just wasn't, didn't, you know, things didn't go well. So I essentially started going after a couple of the, one or two of the guys and um, Garrett hunt, which is another YouTube search for the listeners, but Garrett Hunt, who's another guy, pound for pound, I would say probably top three toughest guys I've played with. Um, luckily, someone had called him and said, you know, you got to come over because, you know, Ratchuk is here and he's he's losing it and he doesn't know where he is. He's, he's drunk. He's, you know. And luckily for me, he came over and he put me basically in a chokehold, choked me out and walked me back to my apartment. Now, like I said, thankfully, I don't remember any of this, but I was told the next morning because I'm <clears throat> walking down the street to go to the store and I see Garrett Hunt and his wife and they both give me this look of like very deep concern and right. I don't know if you've gotten blackout drunk before, but when you see someone look at you like that, I instantly am like, oh, no, like something, something went wrong here. Right. So right away, 
Hunter, Hunter's like, uh, are, are you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right. I just got up, you know, and I don't get what he's talking about. So then he proceeds to tell me the story. And as only he would explain it, he said, honestly, the way that I saw it was if I punched you in the face, I would probably break my hand. I would definitely break your jaw and you wouldn't feel a thing and you would just keep doing what you were doing. And so he was like, I figured if I, I think the way he said it was, if I gave you a quick nap, neither of us would get hurt. I'd put you to bed. You'd be okay. Which again, goes back to my point about that's this, that's like how the tough guys are is he, you know, you can look at it like Jesus, he choked me out, but really like he could have, you know, if it was a stranger, didn't know me a lot worse things probably would, would have and could have happened. So, um, so it was the very next day I woke up and called, I had mentioned before Tom Sestito, I played with my second and third year when I got traded to Columbus and he and I were similar when we played early on, as far as we both like to drink and go out and, I told him the story of what happened the night before, basically what I was just told. Like, yeah, apparently this guy had to choke me. You know, I told him the whole story and Tommy absolutely laid into me over the phone. When are you going to stop this shit? When are you going to knock this off? When are you going to stop? When is enough enough? You know, and it's a, it's a, there's very few people that can look at you in the eye. I mean, we're on the phone, but that can look you in the eye and tell you when you're, when you're really in the wrong and, and um, to have somebody like that, that I was that close with and that I, you know, he again was a guy that big brothered me all the time. So to have him kind of lace into me like that, I was like, okay, well maybe, maybe this really is it. It's too much. And, there's the old saying of you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's, that's really what it was for me. It was, I was getting to a point where it was probably going to be, it was going to be me or somebody else. And it was just going down a really bad, you know, a really bad path. And that's, and that's why, like I said, I think that's why I'm so probably to a fault. I'm so, overly open about those horror stories that I have because the hope is that somebody at some point hears it and says, Oh, that's exactly how I feel. And, you know, because if there's the whole thing is I had a line of people and it's another maybe cliche thing, but I had a line of people that helped me to get to where I am right now. So it's, to me, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of people out there that need it. So it's for me, it's like a constant something I'm always looking for is to kind of help people to get to where I've been lucky enough to get myself to. I mean, it's an everyday working progress. It's nothing that I've figured out by any means, but um, I went through, I went through years and years of opening my mirror in my bathroom before I brushed my teeth because I was, and that's a true story because I was completely sickened with the way that I was and how I acted and the way I treated my career. And it's, it's nice now to 
have different times during the day where I can sit and have a cup of coffee and, you know, actually sit and be at, you know, be very, um, present as they say, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty nice. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, I'm sorry for being so long winded. No, not at all. So you're three years sober here. Uh, life's pretty good. You're back to, it sounds like you've come back into hockey. You had left it for a little while and you're teaching at the, at the Academy in Buffalo that, that you mentioned. Um, what is it like to kind of, you know, be back in, you know, to be back in the rink and especially now of, uh, you know, mentoring and, and, and teaching some, some of these youth. It's, uh, it's honestly, it's, it's unbelievable. I, um, I knew that I knew that it was going to be a big opportunity for me. Um, I didn't realize that it would be, honestly, I don't think I realized it would be this enjoyable and that I missed the game this much. And so do you think, do you think that, you know, that, I mean, not that you might not have a full-time gig coaching, but it seems like you've started a part two of your hockey journey. Yeah. And, and you know what, I think my, my dream honestly has always, I don't know if a lot of people, you know, always dream of being, you know, the number two, I guess I'd say, but I've always wanted to be, you know, an assistant coach at a high level, mainly because of a lot of the assistant coaches that I had in that role where, especially at the pro level and the college level, where it was almost kind of that medium between the head coach and the players like you could you could be close with them and you could call them by a nickname and you could try and you know like you could have good conversations but it was still your coach you had that distance yeah you, you know and I feel like now I'm I've been lucky enough that again my I said my friend Nick Tuzzolino is um he's the the head honcho at the, the hockey academy and I was lucky enough that he called me to to come and work with him and I've known him since we were 14, 15, I would say. And he's as good to me now as he always has been. But he, you know, he said to me, I, I, you know, I want, I want you to get used to it and take your time and get comfortable with it. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been a real, it's an exciting learning experience, but it's, it's, I never thought I would, get to feel this happy again honestly there's i work but but besides coaching there i'm an engineer for the city of buffalo um so i work for the the uh it's called the buffalo housing authority so between that and the and the rink i work seven days a week um which i like to do i don't really i'm one of those people which there's a lot of people like this that i don't really function well with days off and free time and part of that might be the, you know, with the sobriety, it's, I try to obviously do things differently, but, um, you know, to me, it's, I get it. Uh, it's amazing to work a double and go for, I wouldn't even say, you know, it's a couple hours at the rink, but to go from the rink to working my other full-time job and come home at midnight and have to, I go back to work the next morning and I just have this overwhelming sense of calm that I really never thought that I could have. And it's, um, I think a big, a very big part of it is because I've, because hockey's 
back in my life. And it's, you know, like I said, it's always been one, it's one of those things that skating is like walking skating for me is like walking. I think for most people, it's just where I feel the most comfortable. And, um, you know, it's, it's a comfort zone for me. So it's, to me, it's, I, I hope and pray that I'm half of the mentor for these kids that, that I had, um, growing up, but I, like, I hope that I can be something for them. But, um, like I said, it's a constant goal that I have to be someone that can be, you know, a, a coach that can help players and help, you know, help in ways that I can, but also be a guy that's, like I said, that can help with the mental parts and the, you know, um, yeah, no, and I'm sure you will. I mean, the experiences that you had in playing at such a elite levels, I've, I've no doubt that, that that's going to make an impact on them. Um, we're going to jump to real quick, Mike, before we let you go, uh, a lightning round question. This is where we're going to ask you a couple fast questions. You can answer with a name or a place, or if you've got a short story, you can tell a short story. But we're going to put you on the spot with some unusual hockey questions. Okay. All right. I think I'm All ready. Right. All right. So which arena had the worst locker room conditions out of any league you played in? Oh, um, we had a couple <laughs> when I played in the in the Eibel League in, in Austria. Um, there was there was a couple places that were, I mean, it was borderline comical, and it was funny because there'd be people that were smoking cigarettes like just outside the locker room, inside the rink. So it was just a different, again, it was like a different world, but I, I would say the Austrian league, there was, there was, uh, there was some different ones over there. Wow. And uh, not to keep it negative, but I do like to ask this question every time during the lighting round, worst ice conditions considering everywhere you played. Yeah. Oh, um, I, you know what? I would, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's unfortunately the same place, but it was one of the coolest <laughs> games I've ever played in, but, I played in a uh, outdoor game in a, it was an old uh, Coliseum in Croatia and I was playing for Olympia in the Austrian league. And um, we were playing a team out of uh, Zagreb uh, uh, there. I think they're now in the KHL actually, but at the time they were in the Austrian league. So they built a, a rink inside this Coliseum. It was, it was one of the coolest things I've ever played in in my life. But it was, I think, the end of August or the beginning of September. So it was still very warm outside. And they ended up having to push the game back to 1230 at night or one in the morning was when we started the game. And all the fans were still there and everything. But it was borderline like a swimming pool because it was the ice wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't harden. So that was that's the one specific one I can think of. You know, and Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm it just shot in my head. I think didn't Ryan Duncan or one of the guys playing the Austrian league also mention this arena? Yes, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So this is not the first time we've heard this. Believe it or not, Mike. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah was uh, right, I guess, so, Yeah, I think uh, I want to say uh, Duncan was on. Um, 
Salzburg. I, he might have yeah. been there when I was when I was uh, there. Yeah, he's a he was a great player. The toughest goalie to score against. Wow. You can only name one. You can only name one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh God. Um. Wow. Um. <laughs> trying to think here. I have. See, he was. I. The funny thing is, I, I keep thinking of when I'm thinking of goalies. I'm thinking of in practice goalies that I had myself, just because that was where I would. That was where I had the toughest time was goalies that were my own goalies, because they would figure out my moves. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it was easier for yeah. them. To, um, oh God. Yeah. I, you know what? He was my goalie in college and I played against him at the pro level. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to go with Jeff Lurg on that one. Okay. All right. Funniest or most embarrassing thing to happen to you during a game. Um, <laughs> I, oh God, I've been, I feel like I've been embarrassed a few times, but um, I've had a few where I've, I've either, you know, I'm trying to think of either the, see, this is the tough part too, fellas, with having a couple of concussions is with a lightning <laughs> round and, and post concussion. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, when I think of embarrassing things, I I can think of a few different games where it was usually it would amount to playing against old teammates with a lot of family members in the crowd and having a minimum of four turnovers. And so that was normal. That was like heavy embarrassment for me. That was usually how it worked out for me. All right. And the last one, which is, uh, uh, again, it's just a broad question. You've won a lot of championships. Um, it doesn't have to be a championship, but uh, do you have a favorite hockey memory? Oh, wow. Um, I, you know what? I'd say one of them I actually told, uh, I told a friend of mine this recently, but um, when I was going to, you know, like I, the, the, the championships, those are kind of the obvious, you know, like I said, you can remember everything about those nights, but, um, kind of a specific kind of story that I always remember is, um, when I went to visit Boston university and David Quinn was the assistant coach at the time. And he was, again, like I was just talking about that assistant coach that was, he was a younger guy. He knew how to relate to the players and, you know, really, really good guy. He was good to me and my dad. Um, towards the end of the day, we were going to, we were going to come back to the rink and meet Jack Parker, who was the head coach at the time. And Jack Parker was, I, I, when, when I told my friend the story, I said it was, it was almost to me like having a cartoon character come to life again, being, being such a fan of college hockey, you know, I had always seen Jack Parker, the white parted hair, glasses, 
shirt and tie, clean cut, very, you know, but I just, I remember that face. And so I was going to sit down and meet with him. And so this was at the end of this day of kind of walking through the city with David Quinn. Um, I think it was either later. I think it was later that night. They had a home game that my dad and I were going to. And so <clears throat> David Quinn says, okay, yeah, we're going to, we're going to grab something to eat. Then we'll go back and we'll, we'll see coach Parker. So even just that, having him say coach Parker, like I got that flash of like, wow, he might be my coach. Like I might, <laughs> I might get, I might get to call him coach Parker at some point. This is cool. You know? So we go into, we're going into his office, but I, I kind of stopped my dad outside and, uh, I said, dad, I think, I think this is where I'm going to go. And he goes, really? I said, yeah, it's, it's, it feels right. It feels now this was again, before the process of they were waiting on a scholarship. They weren't sure if they would have one, you know, it was kind of before that, but I said, I've kind of fallen in love with the, with the school and the city is beautiful. I love it. You know, like I, I would love to go here. So we go into coach parker's office and it's the four of us me and my dad david quinn and the coach so we're talking kind of small talk and then right off the bat i go mr parker i just wanted to say to you um i know the situation and i know that you guys are you know trying to figure out the the team situation but if there is a way that you guys find the money for a scholarship and you guys can you know this is like if you if you can find a scholarship I, I would commit here because this is where I'd like to play I, I love it here and kind of without bat and I he looks over at David Quinn and does like a like as if he scored a goal he does like a fist pump and winks at David Quinn and to me it was like oh my god this Jack Parker wants me to play for like you know what I mean? It was like this guy yeah. just this guy just fist pumped because I said I might play. You know, like so it was like I said again. It kind of gives me a chill just because I can. I was a young kid. I was, you know, seventeen, eighteen, whatever. And sure. this guy yeah. was a legend to me. So to to watch him do that over me, I was like, that's that's pretty. You know, that's pretty cool. So that is an awesome story. Yeah, and a good and a good story to end this with here, Mike. We've uh, we I'm so glad that we were able to uh, hook up and find a time here to do this podcast. Uh, we can't thank you enough on coming on the show today. I, I, I guys, I really appreciate it. I mean it. Um, this has been good talk, and I apologize again for my never-ending list of details and my stories. But I, but this is this has uh, really been great. I mean it. I, I appreciate this talk. No, this is uh, this is exactly why we have the podcast. So hang on one sec- uh, second, Mike. Uh, I'm just going to pause the recording. Okay, Andrew, Mike Ratchuk. I mean, what great stories and a guy who's willing to open up. Not the first guest to open up about, you know, um, some substance abuse or drinking or whatever the case may be. Uh, but uh you know, they're always willing to talk about it. And it's always a great thing that they overcome those obstacles and that life is pretty good for them now. Absolutely. Yeah. And you never know too, um, you know, the 
it could be just that person that is struggling, you know, having similar struggles like that, um, similar addictions, whatever it may be, and maybe something that they need to hear uh, to get a different perspective or to want to start a change. So um, it's always good. Yeah, like you said, when guys open up like that so we can hear their story. And um, it's nice to also hear that he's getting back into the hockey world. Obviously, that's his true passion and love and just great stories today, man. It was a great episode. Well, yeah. And, you know, and I, and I don't want, even though, you know, he, you know, uh, wanted to, you know, talk uh, about his sobriety and, and he, and he should, but certainly that, you know, his, um, um, his drinking didn't define him. I mean, this guy was, you know, we'll put that aside. And this guy was like a good luck charm. And I, I was going to ask him about that, but um, I didn't want to put him on the spot. I mean, he wins the world championship. He, uh, you know, wins a, you know, a collegiate title, you know, he wins a Kelly cup. I mean, the guy's like, uh, like the lucky charm of hockey. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. And he just had, he had a great career. I know that, you know, he has his, um, his bad moments and those stories that he had talked about, but overall, I mean, he was able to play professionally around the world, played for a long time. And, um, you know, at least he can be grateful for those moments that he had. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it's up to him of, of, uh, and the opportunities that um, hopefully will present himself that he can uh, continue on his hockey journey, or if he wants to, you know, continue with uh, a different career path and that's great for him, but uh, it's exciting to hear that he's back into hockey because um, we've had a few guests on that um, have left hockey. They, and finally getting back. And I'm thinking of, um, Oh gosh, I shouldn't put myself on the spot. Um, you know, the, um, the older player, Andrew, come on, help me out. He left hockey for years and years and years. And now he's just now making a he's, comeback, you know, after his book. Steve Septel. Yeah, Steve. And, you know, Steve, you know, he left hockey for such a long time and now getting back to it. And uh, so I'm glad it didn't take that long uh, for Mike to, you know, want to come back and be part of the game. So uh, we wish him all the best of luck. And we've got some cool guests coming up. Uh, you guys will just have to tune in. But we want to thank, again, Black and Gold Hockey Productions, LLC, for being our parent company and handling all the distribution. We're on every podcast, anywhere, it seems. So, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter. Lind uh, what is it? Hockey Lindroth is yep. our tag name. And yep. uh, we'll catch everybody later. What do you got to say, Andrew? That's about it. Just follow us. And also, too, just some quick, exciting news. I won't get into too much detail, but we will um, be having shirts coming out soon. And uh, at least by the time that this episode comes out, we will. And hopefully our new website as well that I've been working hard. So we appreciate everybody continuing to support us. This will be actually episode 49. So we're close to episode 50. So thank you for the continued support and have a wonderful rest of the week. Thank you all very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.